0: Thank you so much, worship team. Appreciate it. If you would turn to 1 Corinthians 14. I want to continue going through the book of 1 Corinthians. Seek to complete that before we complete the book of Acts. 1 Corinthians 14. Chapters 12 and 14 have to do with the issue of spiritual gifts in the church And smack dab in the middle of that is the chapter on love. And the reality is Paul is seeking to encourage them to to love each other in light of the issue of spiritual gifts. And so today we're going to talk about pursuing love in the worship of the church. Now, the really interesting thing about the topic of spiritual gifts in light of the first century and what Paul is dealing with here is that a lot of the issues that he was dealing with in the first century we're still dealing with in the 21st century. That there are still issues over um, these gifts that he talks about, especially the gift of tongues and prophecy and what place they have in the church and how they should be ordered and and, uh, exercised and things like that. For me, it's helpful to keep in mind the fact that we need to look at the issue of spiritual gifts in the same way we look at the issue of eschatology. Uh, that there's room for disagreement, because there are so many different ways that people understand what we see in the scriptures about um, this topic. In fact, just this week I watched um, a video with R.C. Sproul and Michael Horton and um, Alistair Begg, and if you listen to all it said, with regard to a question about spiritual gifts and things especially like tongues and prophecy and things like that, you could tell that even they weren't totally on the same page in terms of exactly how to understand all that the scripture says about it. And so there's a place for uh, humility and there's a place for recognizing that there's room in the body of Christ for disagreement. And yet we're called to study the scriptures carefully. We're called to even look at the history of the church and give an honest assessment of what it appears God has done uh, over the course of the history of the church, and there needs to be a healthy reluctance to out of hand dismiss what people say is their experience. There may be good scriptural reasons to to maybe question it or even to re- reinterpret what they experience, but we have to be careful of just being too quick to dismiss what people say they've experienced. And so all of those things, are, I think, are important as we talk about something like this. And I take the time to introduce it this way because um, there was a strange fire conference, as some of you may remember, a decade or so ago at John MacArthur's church. And there are ripples from that conference even today in terms of um, people being very uh, passionate on one side or the other with regard to the issue of the charismatic movement. In fact, I just saw a meme. I'm not sure when it came out, but in this meme, there's um, there's this person in hell in this cartoon type meme, and the person says, God, what are you doing here? And there's this old man who's supposed to be God, and he replies, John MacArthur appointed himself judge. And I didn't make the cut. So what's behind those kinds of memes? That's my question. Is why would someone make a meme like that? It's because people have gotten the impression, right or wrong, from the conference, the Strange Fire Conference, that basically the position of those at the Strange Fire Conference is that everyone in the charismatic movement should be condemned. In fact, person who posted this said, John MacArthur sends 500 million charismatics to hell. And so I share that just to say that that's the way a lot of people have heard what was said at the Strange Fire Conference, and that's their takeaway. And so it highlights the fact that there's a lot of uh, passionate disagreement over how to understand the spiritual gifts as as they're talked about and described in the New Testament and whether or not what we're experiencing today is what they experienced then or is it something different for one reason or another. One of the um, criticisms of those who disagreed with the Strange Fire Conference is that it seemed to them that um, the conference was lumping every charismatic into the same category. You know, uh, everybody on the what they would consider the extremes were considered to be just as extreme in certain ways and and yet part of the, the criticism of those at the conference was it doesn 't seem like people in the charismatic movement are poli- policing themselves very well and they 're not standing up and speaking against those extremes and therefore it 's raising the question you know, where do you stand on these things. And so, anyway, I could go on and talk about that more, but I don't want to spend too much time on that other than to say there's a tendency for all of us with regard to this kind of issue to not give due weight to the scriptures and not to give due weight to the reality of what has happened in history or in people's experience, but to evaluate everything in light of scripture. Scripture is our final authority for both what we should expect God to do and how to interpret what God is doing in our lives. And so that's why looking at a chapter like 1 Corinthians 14 is important because it is the standard for evaluating these kinds of things, or at least this portion of Scripture is one of the portions of Scripture that we should look at in evaluating these things. So let me read for us this uh, chapter. And we'll begin looking at it today. I want to take a little time, probably two or three Sundays, because it's such an important issue, and there's so much controversy over it. Um, I think it might be helpful for us to really think this through. In verse 1, Paul says, Pursue love, yet desire earnestly spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. For no one understands... But in his spirit, he speaks mysteries. But one who prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. One who speaks in a tongue edifies himself. But one who prophesies edifies the church. Now, I wish that you all spoke in tongues, but even more that you would prophesy. And greater is one who prophesies um, than the one who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets So that the church may receive edifying. And now, brethren, if I come to you speaking in tongues, what will I profit you unless I speak to you either by way of revelation or of knowledge or of prophecy or of teaching? Yet even lifeless things, either flute or harp, in producing a sound, if they do not produce a distinction in the notes, how will it be known what is played on the flute or on the harp? For if the bugle produces an indistinct sound... Who will prepare himself for battle? So also you, unless you utter by the tongue speech that is clear, how will it be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking into the air. There are perhaps a great many kinds of languages in the world, and no kind is without meaning. If then I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be to the one who speaks a barbarian, and the one who speaks will be a barbarian to me. So also you, since you are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek to abound for the edification of the church. Therefore, let one who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What is the outcome then? I will pray with the spirit, and I will pray with the mind also. I will sing with the spirit, and I will sing with the mind also. Otherwise, if you bless in the spirit only... How will the one who fills the place of the ungifted say the amen at your giving of thanks, since he does not know what you are saying? For you are giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not edified. I thank God I speak in tongues more than you all. However, in the church, I desire to speak five words with my mind so that I may instruct others also, rather than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brethren, do not be children in your thinking. Yet in evil be infants, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers. I will speak to this people, and even so they will not listen to me, says the Lord. So then tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophecy is for a sign, not to unbelievers, but to those who believe. Therefore, if the whole church assembles together and all speak in tongues... And ungifted men or an unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are mad? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. What is the outcome then, brethren? When you assemble, each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. If anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be by two or at the most three, and each in turn, and one must interpret. But if there is no interpreter, he must keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others pass judgment. But if a revelation is made to another who is seated, the first one must keep silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all may be exhorted. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. The women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but are to subject themselves, just as the law also says." If they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is improper for a woman to speak in church. Was it from you that the word of God first went forth, or has it come to you only? If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are are the Lord's commandment. But if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. Therefore, my brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy and do not... Forbid to speak in tongues, but all things must be done properly and in an orderly manner. May God bless His Word. Now, um, if you're like me, you read a passage like that, and there are all kinds of questions that come to mind immediately. And hopefully, we'll be able to touch on at least some of those um, over the next uh, couple weeks or so. But I'd like to try and break this down in light of what Paul begins by saying at the very first. He says in verse 1, and obviously this is right off of 1 Corinthians 13, which is all about love, and he's argued for the importance, the essential of love. He says at the very beginning of this chapter, pursue love, yet desire earnestly spiritual gifts. So he's basically saying that you need to make sure that in your exercise of spiritual gifts and in your worship, that you're pursuing love. And so the way I'm breaking down this chapter is to say, first of all, that is the governing command in the whole chapter is pursue love. And then he highlights the fact that if you're pursuing love, love seeks to edify or to build up others. But also love that edifies is clear. He makes a very important emphasis on clarity in the worship service and what is happening there. And he says that love that edifies also has an understanding of the purpose of what's taking place in the worship service and why. And then finally, love that edifies is orderly, uh, that there is a structure and a decorum that is to be observed in the worship of God. And so we want to look at all of that in light of the fact that Paul is encouraging the believers in Corinth to do these things in light of the fact that they're not doing these things. That's why he's saying what he's saying is because things are out of control and they're valuing uh, things in an inappropriate way. Some things are valuing too much. Others, they're dismissing in various ways. And so the first thing that I want to just highlight is the the command to pursue love. Uh, On the front of our bulletin, we have this uh, motto of sorts that says that our goal is to make disciples who rest in Jesus, hope in God, and pursue love. And the resting in Jesus part is that we're resting in who he is and what he's done for us so that we can be forgiven of our sins and have eternal life because we're saved by grace through faith and not according to works. And we're to be reminded of that and we're to fight with that truth every time we sin. At the same time, we're to hope in God, which means my hope is not in my spouse, just like we talked about marriage. My hope is not in my children or my job or anything else. I'm trusting, the, I'm trusting God and his promises in every relationship and every situation. And it's that resting in Jesus and that hoping in God that fuels my love, that enables me to pursue love. The Bible tells me what love looks like through what God has commanded us to do or not do. And so Paul... Takes this chapter to tell them what to do and what not to do with regard to spiritual gifts in the worship service in order to pursue love, because that's how we flesh out what God calls us to do in that regard. The interesting uh, thing about the word pursue is it could also be translated persecute. And so that's why in Matthew 5, Jesus says, Blessed are those who have been persecuted. For the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So what is the common theme between pursue and persecute? Well, typically persecution involves pursuit. You're going after people who believe things that you don't think they should believe or they're doing things you don't think they should be doing. But at the heart of it is a passion. Uh, passion, uh, excuse me. Persecution usually isn't done by indifferent people. They're very passionate about trying to stamp out something. And so when he says pursue love, he's saying make that your prime passion in life is to love in the way that God calls you to love, to love him and to love others. And the word love there is obviously agape. And that love is defined by the very nature of God, is defined by the cross of Christ, It's a picture of what it really means to love, and it's defined by the Word of God, which tells us what to do and what not to do in the pursuit of love. And that's why one of the simple ways to define this kind of love that God is calling us to pursue is to say it is to lay down our lives to please God and do good to others according to God's Word. If you would, turn to 1 John 3. If you have a Bible, if you have access to I just want to highlight again, because we spent a lot of time in 1 Corinthians 13, said a lot about love, but I want to make sure that we just highlight some of the key themes because they're going to come into play as we work through this chapter on what it looks like uh, to love each other in the worship of the church. And so in 1 John 3, 13, uh, John says this, do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you, talking to Christians. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. So there he says, one evidence that you're really a Christian is that you love other Christians. If someone says, you know, I love Jesus, but I don't love the church, uh, there's a problem there, biblically. Because it says very clearly that if we love Jesus, we will love those who are also united to Jesus. He goes on and says, He who does not love abides in death. Again, this is the agape love that uh, Paul mentions. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Then, this is the cross aspect of defining love. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, speaking of Jesus, on the cross. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Now the question is, Lay down our lives in what way? Well, in whatever way is needed to love that person. It doesn't necessarily mean dying physically. How do we know that? Because of the next verse. He says, But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? So what John is saying is, if you see a fellow Christian in need and you have resources that could help this person, and you don't do it, you're indifferent to that need, you refuse to lay down your life, lay down your money, lay down your resources to help this brother, then there's a problem there. Because you say you love God, but you're not practically loving other Christians. And so the laying down of our lives is not just dying. It it would include that, but it isn't simply that. It also means Laying down my time, laying down my money, laying down my resources, serving in whatever way I can to help others, especially in the body of Christ, but even beyond the body of Christ. So he goes on to say, um, little children, verse 18, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. We will know by this that we are of the truth and will assure our heart before him. And whatever our heart condemns us, for God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. That last verse highlights why I have defined love or agape love in the way that I have. To lay down our lives to please God and do good to others. Laying down our Our lives reflects what John says about we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. The pleasing of God reflects this last verse that I read where he says, we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. Is that something different than love? No, that's what love looks like. Love looks like doing what pleases God. It looks like keeping his commands. And so it's a matter of pleasing God and doing good to others in light of what the word of God says. And so just a a quick summary and reminder of what we were trying to convey as we went through 1 Corinthians 13. Now, one of the things that I didn't get to do at the end of the message last week was to highlight um, the importance of the love of God with regard to other loves. You you might notice that... um, did, did you read this this morning about love for God and love for neighbor? Was that part of your reading? I'm trying to think. I think it was. Yes. So if you notice, when Jesus responds to the question about what is the great greatest commandment, he says, The greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then to love your neighbor as yourself. You sometimes think, Well, I'm not doing that love God thing too well, but I think I'm doing my love my neighbor thing pretty well. It doesn't work that way. You don't move up. You have to go down. You start with loving God, and then you're able to love your neighbor. That's the, that's the way it works, is that our pursuit of love for God enables us to truly love our neighbor in the way that is described in, in 1 John 3. And so that's why C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Four Loves, argue that the more natural loves have to be governed by the divine love, love for God. It's kind of like um, the, the one ring in the Lord of the Rings. You know, it says one ring to rule them all, one ring to find them, one ring to bring them all, and in the darkness bind them. Now, that's a negative thing. But the one ring idea is a helpful thing to picture that the one love that God calls us to is love for him, and loving like he loves as a result of love for him, that is to rule all of our other loves, whether it's love for family, love for friends, or otherwise. And it's really important for us to understand that and not to think that, you know, my pursuit of God is kind of uh, secondary. I'm focused on loving my family. and I'm focused on lo- loving my wife or loving my kids or whatever, but you know, yeah, so I don't spend much time really pursuing my love for God. We are totally out of whack when when we're thinking that way. We're not thinking biblically when we think that way. And that's why we need to gather every Sunday and remind ourselves, oh yeah, the worship of God is really crucial to everything that's happening during the week. It's a meant It's meant to remind us of that reality. And so... Um, We can say that the one love that should rule, rule all other loves is love for God that causes us to love others like God loves us. And one way to think about love for God, for years I tried to figure out, so how do you even define love for God? What does that really look like, sound like, feel like, or whatever? And I think one of the most helpful things for me is to think of it in terms of being pleased with God and living to please God what does jesus mean when he says if you love me you'll keep my commandments isn't keeping his commandments what love is about i mean john will say and this is love that we keep his commandments but jesus seems to add something to that if you love me you'll keep my commandments the implication being there's there's something that goes beyond just simply focusing on keeping my commandments, which is very practical and very important. It is the pleasing God part. What is that other thing? It's being pleased with God. And I really believe that's reflected in the Lord's Prayer. And I've mentioned this last week. When it says, Jesus taught us to pray, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. What does that mean? Especially the idea of, sanctifying the name of God. It means to set it apart as being unique in the sense that I look to God in a way that I don't look to anybody else. And I am pleased with God in a way that I'm not pleased with anyone else. In the sense that God has promised to be all that I need and all that I desire and I'm pleased with a God like that. I I see God as the one who's promised through Jesus to be all that I need and all that I desire. And that's the God I want. I want a God who by his grace promises all that I need and all that I desire. And I can say, yes, I am pleased with God. Now, does that mean that I always live in a way that's consistent with that? Does that mean that my fervor for God is everything that it should be? No. But my vision of God is such that when I'm in my right mind, I say, yeah, I'm I'm pleased with God. He's sovereign. He's sufficient. He's satisfying. He's everything that I could want in, in a God. Everything I could want. And when Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments the implication is you'll pursue love and you'll pursue obedience because it comes from someone that you're pleased with and you know that they wouldn't pr- command you to do something that was going to be detrimental to you or to those you love so it's 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 connected there and so the 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 thing that we need to keep in mind with regard to all of this is that Our love for God is to fuel our love for others in various ways. Um, C.S. Lewis talks about the reality that we need to recognize that the love of affection can go bad. We talked last week about that. Let's just take a minute and pray before I go on. Father, we just pray for those who are ministering to this young lady. Please give them wisdom and grace, and loving her, and encouraging her, and helping her. We pray that you would um, just lead them in what to say and do. We pray that you would meet the deepest needs of her heart. For you, we pray that you would deliver her from the enemy of her soul. Father, we pray in the name of Jesus that you would uh, meet her every need, and we just ask for grace as a body. To love her in whatever way you would have us to. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. So, C.S. Lewis talks about the love of affection, and he talks about the reality that um, it's interesting that familial love, like love for your family or love for those who are familiar, that you're familiar with, can be the greatest enemy of familial happiness. Now, what does he mean by that? What he means by that is, he says, this happens because our ownership, and we talked about the fact that he says part of the problem is we, be, we think of people close to us as those, in a sense, we possess or we own. And he says because of our ownership and our familiars, it makes us react in ways we would never react to strangers. And so what he's saying is that there's a we tend to think of home for instance, is a place where we can be ourselves and we can kind of let our guard down. And he says, you know what? That's really not true. There's no arena of life, he says, where you can lay down the reins over the horse of your own passions and actions that need to be bridled by the Spirit and by the Word of God. And so if I... If I work very hard outside the home to be kind and courteous and patient with people, then I come home and I just want to relax and, quote, be myself. And I'm impatient and harsh with those at home. He would say, you're not allowing the love of God to rule the love of affection or the love of family. You're, you're loosening the reins. And you're justifying it because, well, isn't this my arena where I can just be myself? And he says, It will never be lawful simply to be ourselves until ourselves have become sons of God. Which means it's not never going to be appropriate for me just to be myself until I'm glorified. Until all sin has been uh, r- eradicated from my heart and life. And so that's one way in which he says very practically... My love for God is to rule over my love for my family and other people that I'm just so familiar with that it's easy for me just to say things that I would never say to a stranger, do things that I would never do uh, for someone that I just met on the street, um, that I would work just as hard at home to be kind and courteous and patient as I am on the job or in any other situation. And so he says... When God, love for God and the way that God loves rules, then we'll be more and more sensitive to that and we'll pursue that more. He also uses um, an illustration with regard to the ruled love of friendship. He talks about the fact that in friendship, um, the, the lust for the inner ring, wanting to be inside this group of people for various reasons can cause us to do things that we wouldn't normally do. And so he says we have to fight that lust to be on the inside, so to speak, and basically do what he talks about in the story of the horse and his boy, where there's this attitude in the story where we should be ready to be friends with anyone who is friendly and not give a fig for anyone who isn't. Basically the idea of we're ready to be friendly with anyone who's friendly. Meaning that if I begin to feel that I'm part of an exclusive group within the church or otherwise, or I'm uh, fostering an, an exclusive kind of uh, us versus them mentality in the church or otherwise, we should do everything we can to tear down those walls and to reach out outside of that He says we should blow up the hidden boundaries by embracing those on the outside, no matter how awkward a hug that might be. Then thirdly, and he's obviously arguing, it's love for God that's going to cause us to want to do that. It's love for God that's going to cause us to be sensitive to those kinds of relational dynamics between friends within the church and otherwise. Then the last thing, he talked about the love of eros. And he says that the big thing about eros is that it wants to. Um, he wants it wants total commitment. He says he's basically talking about our sexual appetite, that it demands unconditional obedience. That what, whatever our urges are in this area, he says, eros wants them to be satisfied no matter what. That is exactly where we are as a society. Our society argues that eros, which is romantic love, but it also includes um, sexual relationships. In our society, people are arguing that that should not be denied. That that is, from many people's perspective, the ultimate happiness and the ultimate freedom is to not deny any of those urges. And C.S. Lewis would argue uh, freedom begins when we actually exercise self-control, when we actually realize that we just can't give in to our appetites. We have to bridle the horse. And um, he uses an illustration in his book called The Great Divorce. In The Great Divorce, there's, um, there's a ghost up in heaven. Don't get me to explain all that, but it's a picture. This ghost up in heaven and he has a red lit lizard on his shoulder. And this red lizard on the shoulder of this ghost up in heaven is constantly whispering things in this person's ear. And this man is embarrassed by what the lizard is saying, but at the same time, he's attracted to what the lizard is saying. And the lizard is whispering things along the lines of lust and sexual appetite and things like that. And the, the man, the ghost, is about to leave heaven, and an angel comes along and says, would you like for me to kill, kill it? And at first, the man says yes, and then he says no. I don't want you to kill it. And so there's this dialogue back and forth over that, and the ghost repeatedly makes excuses, But finally, as the story goes, the angel ends up breaking the back of the lizard. And two amazing things happen in the story. Um, One is the ghost is no longer a ghost. He becomes solid. He turns into a strong, bright, golden-haired man. He goes from being a ghost to being a solid, strong man. The lizard also undergoes a transformation. He turns into a great stallion. And the man gets on the stallion and rides joyously and swiftly toward the great mountains of heaven. Obviously, C.S. Lewis is making a point. The point he's making is that the very lusts that we often give in to need to be killed appropriately the Bible talks about mortifying sin so that they can actually be what they were intended to be. And so C.S. Lewis is picturing the fact that our lower natures long for us to overcome them so that they can become their true selves. And we overcome them through self-denial, self-control, and taking up our cross to follow Christ. He says our sexual appetites must die, but in God's world, faithful death leads to resurrection. So that those, those desires that have been perverted are put to death and they're raised to newness of life to, so that we become the people that we were meant to be. And one of the things that C.S. Lewis emphasized was what God is up to is making us truly human. That's really what he's doing. We have rejected him, walked away from him, embraced sin, And we're not human in the way that God intended for us to be. And it's through Christ and through the work of the Holy Spirit and through glorification that we actually become truly human in the sense that God intended. And so what Paul is doing here in this chapter is encouraging us to make sure that we recognize that pursuing love is crucial to all of our relationships, and in First Corinthians 14, he's saying it's crucial to our relationships in the body of Christ that we need to make sure that we, when we come to church on Sunday, that the most important thing isn't whether so-and-so speaks to us or not, or whether or not we get to do certain things. That The most important thing is that we pursue love, which means, again, that we're not coming just to spectate, We're actually coming to participate. We're coming to show love to God and love to each other. And so um, what Paul says in this first verse is he says, Pursue love, yet desire earnestly spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God, for no one understands. But in his spirit, he speaks mysteries. The one who prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. One who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but one who prophesies edifies the church. Now I wish that you all spoke in tongues, but even more that you would prophesy and greater is one who prophesies than one who speaks in tongues unless he interprets so that the church may receive edifying. So the word edification or edifying appears four different times in those five verses. And so Paul isn't saying that spiritual gifts are not important. He's saying they are important. But what's most important is that you exercise them in love. And so he is highlighting the fact that spiritual uh, Not every spiritual gift is equal in terms of how it should play out in the worship service. And he's contrasting the gift of tongues and the gift of prophecy. And he's saying that there is a way to exercise certain gifts privately that doesn't benefit the church. And the question is that Paul is raising, is that really what God intended? Did God really intend for the spiritual gifts to simply be a private matter Either, either in terms of what we do privately or in, even in terms of what we do publicly. Is it really all about just me and Jesus? Or is it really about me and the body of Christ? And he's highlighting the fact that it's really about us and the body of Christ. And as I mentioned, the word for edify is to build up. And it can be maybe explained in terms of Romans 15:2. each of us is to please his neighbor for his good. To his edification. In other words, when we get together on Sunday, we're here to worship God, but we're also here to do good to each other. That means before, during, and after the service, while we're together, our goal is to pursue love. It's to pursue edification, seeking to do each other good. Ephesians four twenty nine says, "Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment." so that it will give grace to those who hear. So the idea of edification there is about giving grace. That what I say and what I do is actually meant or should be intended to give grace to others. Grace to do what? Well, what he says in at the end of 1 Corinthians 13, faith, hope and love, grace to rest in Jesus, grace to hope in God, grace to pursue love that when I come, I want to be somehow a part of, even if it's just in singing with other believers, I want to be a part of encouraging everyone here to rest their hope for forgiveness and eternal life in Jesus and Jesus alone. And I want to encourage everyone here to put their hope in God and his promises for happiness and for help. And I want to encourage everyone here, one way or the other, to actually pursue love in all of their relationships in light of what the Bible says is really the loving thing to do. And so we do that corporately as we sing. We do that as we pray together. And we also do it informally as we fellowship uh, before and after church. So all of that is a part of God's vision for us as we get together. Obviously, there's so much more to say about that. But the issue of love is really what Paul is going to lay out in terms of the rest of the chapter and what that looks like. And we'll talk more about that next week. Let's just bow together in prayer. Let me just encourage you, in light of what I just said, are you today resting in Jesus? If you were to die today and God were to say something like, why should I let you into heaven? Would you say, because I'm trusting in Jesus and Jesus alone in light of what he's done For sinners, in light of what he's done for me, in living the life I could never live, dying the death I deserve to die, and, and rising from the dead as an able and willing Savior for sinners. I'm trusting Jesus. I'm resting in him alone, not resting in anything I've done. Is that what you're doing? If not, I would urge you to put your faith in Jesus, to rest in Jesus, and to call on him to be your Lord and your Savior even now if if you haven't already done so. But if you have, I would encourage you, regardless of how your week went this week, whatever your sin might have been, whatever might be plaguing you, even this morning and distracting you, that you would rest in Jesus and know that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Also, I'd like to ask as we pray, are you hoping in God? Are you trusting his promises? Are you anxious and fearful? Are are you looking to him to meet your needs and satisfy your soul? Are you looking to your spouse? Are you looking to your children? Are you looking to your job? And do you need to repent of that and, and look to God for what you need and put your hope in him and what he's promised you in Jesus that you might have more joy and peace as you walk through whatever you're walking through? And finally, are you pursuing love? Is it your goal to actually put into practice what the Bible says in your relationships, in your marriage, in your parenting, in your relationship with your parents, in your work situation? Are you seeking to do what the Bible calls you to do and to pursue love in that way? And in light of what we talked about, about relationships and making sure that the love of God rules all of our loves, are there ways in which you need to Confess that you're not letting the love of God rule and to pray for grace, to let the love of God rule more and more in your relationships and to rule and reign over all your loves. Father, we just ask that you would speak to our hearts, that you'd grant us grace through your word and through this time in it, and that you'd help us to do just that, to rest in Jesus, to hope in you, O God, and to pursue love according to your word And may we find much joy and peace, much greater joy and peace in doing so. And may you receive all the glory. May we receive the good and may others in our lives receive the good as well. In Jesus' wonderful name we pray. Amen.